Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Susan Madsen is the inaugural Karen Haight Huntsman Endowed Professor of Leadership at the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University and founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. Today we're going to check in with Dr. Madsen to explore such topics as building emotional resilience in girls and young women, building confidence in girls, status of Utah black women, shrinking families in the state of motherhood, what do moms need. If you go to the website for... Utah Women in Leadership Project, uh, these and many, many other topics, uh, papers and presentations uh, there to, uh, to to see, and we're going to check in with Dr. Madsen uh, today. Susan Madsen, welcome uh, back to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, so before we jump into a lot of these very important topics, um, I wanted to just take a couple things from your, uh, from your, from your current activities in your bio. Um, you are, I'm reading, a visiting fellow at the University of Zagreb. Is that a, a current thing? Do you get to go to Croatia? I have. Actually, I was just in Croatia a couple of weeks ago, So, and also in Slovenia, a place called Bled, Slovenia, that's beautiful. So um, I, I did some uh, work with helping universities over in Europe with their gender equality plans, they're called. Um, so enjoy my work uh, in Utah, but also enjoy my work and internationally as well. That's wonderful. I, I know you've had uh, similar posts in England and other places. I guess yeah. you you become known in this in this area, and the other universities uh, reach out to you. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'm I'm uh, starting the process of updating a global book that I published in an edited book in 2017 called. The Handbook of Research on Gender and Leadership, a global book with some of the latest research, and, and the publisher has been on me to do a second edition. So I'm starting on that, and that should come out next month. And it's helpful uh, information and research for Utah, but it's also so many of the issues, most of the issues that we face in Utah. We'll get into those, Tom, as, mm-hmm. as you've mentioned some of those. Um you know, we see those issues in other countries and in other states. In Utah and other conservative cultures like us, uh, we do see those exaggerated. For instance, the wage gap. Everybody pretty much has a wage gap issue. Not everybody, but most people, most countries. But in Utah, we see that even more. So, um, so, but everybody's really struggling with some of the gender issues that we talk about. Um, and it, it's, Something that that I'm on all the time, and and we have little nuggets of success from time to time, mm-hmm. Tom. Yeah, so well, those are fun good. to talk about as well. Yeah, you mentioned in conservative areas, these uh, problems are exacerbated. Why? Yeah, absolutely. In in conservative areas, and the research around religious, more religious societies actually um, show g- greater struggles with sexism, with the wage gap. For instance, a couple years ago, there was a study that came out on the wage gap and and looked at every state and compared the states and then did a second study and compared the countries and looked at which states were the most religious and compared them on the wage gap and the same thing with countries. And so what they found is pretty much in every, and they didn't break down all the religions, just religious, you know, states and countries in general, and found that in fact, every Every more religious societies had much wider pay gaps uh, between men and women, and there are many reasons for that, but they really articulated three, one being fertility rate, and you know that 
that there's a mom penalty on the wage gap. Um, And the second was that more religious and conservative societies have um, less women in political positions, political power uh, empowerment. And we see that, of course, in Utah as well. So, So when, you know, the third one is actually sexual objectification. So um, in more religious societies, you tend to have more sexual objectification um, measured by pornography rates. And, and we see in Utah higher levels of, of cosmetic surgery and those kinds of things. So the, the face-to-face, even though we talk about that, not, not, you know, that we shouldn't base everything on your looks instead of, you know, you, you need your brain is the most important, right? We still tend to, to see that. Um, and it all comes down to really any, any culture where you say, well, men's, men should do these specific tasks and women should do these specific tasks. Any culture where you do that, you end up having uh, men with a lot more power than women. So I know you probably didn't want to jump into deep stuff already, Tom, but that, that's some of the research around that. No, th- this is great. This is great. Uh, um, it, it, important uh, stuff, right? So, yeah. so what? And we, maybe jump ahead a little bit, a bit here. But uh, what, what are some solutions? I know you. You know you. You study this, and community leaders are working on this. Uh, you've articulated some some problems, especially in conservative areas of which we are. Uh, what are some solutions? Well, that that is sounds like an easy question, but it is not, Tom. So. Um, we did, in December of this past year, Zions Bank had commissioned a report from us, and, and in December we released it, and it's called The Women's Equality in Utah, Why Utah's Ranked as the Worst State and What Can Be Done. And we really based it around um, the Wallet Hub 17 metrics. And, and Utah gets ranked as the worst state in the nation year after year for and there's 17 metrics that are categorized into three chunks. And so, like, the workplace environment is one. Ten of the metrics are there. Education and health is another one. And then the third one is back to the political empowerment. And in our report, we actually give very specific solutions or things that will help us, you know, move the needle. For instance, let's jump over to that health and wellness. So, in the Wallet Hub, there's 100 points total, and the health and wellness is 40 of those points with only three metrics. That's really interesting when you look at that. So one of them is when you look at eighth-grade math scores and the difference between boys and girls. So Utah's not the worst, but we're in the 40 out of you know the 50 states, 43rd, I think. But... Um, we do have quite a gap when you compare us to other states and other countries. There's some countries that boys and girls at eighth grade or whatever age are the same in math. So, so we know that girls and boys can be the same. In Utah, we're like 43rd. I'm not sure about that number. And so that is like why. So when you talk about solutions, you're quite, you know, is what can we do? So, of course, the K through 12 system in the state is, is on that and doing different things, but really there are some best practices. Other countries, other states do better than Utah. And when you have, that's just one of the metrics that you can move the needle on. But this, it's tricky, tricky though, because there's subtle messages, even more in conservative societies. I love living in Utah, Tom. Mm-hmm. I, I do love living here, but, 
but there's messages that come out subtly and sometimes not so subtly that math and science, those are for boys and girls should be doing other things. You see that play out in our uh, college majors. So even more than other states, we have less women in STEM, less women in, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and so forth. But that comes from being raised, girls being raised, their parents, you know, grandparents, teachers, religious leaders, just having those subtle messages. So that's one. One you might find interesting. A second one is um, that we have the biggest gap in the whole nation between the percentage and numbers of women who get graduate degrees compared to men. So in in Utah, we have so many more men that get graduate degrees than women. So we actually, that one thing, we lose a lot of points on Wallet Hub, but other rankings because of that. So those are just a couple of things. I mean, there's other metrics on the wage gap and, and how many women compared to men make over $100,000, um, how many women compared to men um, are in, quote, executive positions, like in their companies and organizations. And and then, um, as, as I mentioned, there's a whole section of of political empowerment, too. So we have, there's four metrics, five points each on that. And, and you'll smile because the timing is interesting here. That uh, the first one is, you know, do we have women uh, in the U.S. Senate? Second is, do we have women in the U.S. Um, House of Representatives? And then our percentage in um, our state legislature, and then also our statewide executive posts. We have five of those. We do have our lieutenant governor's woman. So that's a little bit of the overview. And on those political ones, of course, our solutions there are to elect more women to those positions. The research says when there are more women who have political power and states that are more equal numbers, that you see much of the, you know, so much of the equality and equity issues between genders um, definitely, um, you know, move more towards being equal. I want to... um... I want to talk a little bit more about education, uh, deeper dive on, on that one. This is where you this is where you began, right? I understand you were asked to yeah. do some studies, and that that's where you got it. Kind of got into this this work. Um, yeah, that was 13, 13 years ago. I was asked by the commissioner and and the governor's um, education excellence commission to do some research on why more women weren't graduating from college, and we've really focused on bachelor's degree levels at that point. Um, so it's interesting. Some of these rankings used to use the bachelor's degree and really have come to um, the graduate degree. So so we haven't done a lot of talking. You, probably, you don't even hear it too much in the state on the importance of women getting graduate degrees. I think more and more people are accepting that that it, it's a good idea for women to have bachelor's degrees as well as men. You know, other states sometimes there's a lot of women going to college and and the men graduating from college is, you know, is going down, and we definitely don't want that to happen. We, you can, we want to lift numbers and percentages of women and men. Um, so uh, I wonder how. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, grad uh, undergraduate uh, just for a moment here. Um, you were asked to do some research on why more women in Utah were not going to and graduate from college. Are, are those numbers improving for women, the, the undergrad? 
Absolutely. Uh, when you look at um, when you compare compare the men and women getting right now coming out of colleges and universities, getting their undergraduate degrees. Um, in terms of associates, Tom, an interesting thing is women have been above men in associate degrees, primarily because women aspire to associate degrees more than men do. And so men are not in those programs as much as women. But, it, you know, in the last number of years, we have, uh, in fact, some of the latest statistics show that, that women are getting right now uh, slightly more um, bachelor's degrees than men in the state, but pretty equal. Um, it, what's interesting is we always come out low in the national statistics, even still, because when you compare where Utah is to the nation, we're always going to come out low if we have equal numbers of men and women graduating. Because in other states, you have so few men, um, and we don't want to get into that, right? We want more men graduating from college and more women. So we are making some progress, at least when you compare men to women in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was interested, uh, you you uh, have a link to an article in the Daily Universe, this is BYU's uh, student newspaper, right? Um, yeah. And uh, this includes some quotes from you and some quotes from some uh, young women, uh, students uh, at uh, BYU. And uh, it goes to this where we started the pro- the, the, the conversation on, on culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're quoted as saying that uh, you, you say there's improvements, but you say you still hear high school counselors say to young women, you, oh, you don't want a degree, that's for men. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're getting better, but but you hear actually people all the time tell me they their parents, you know, not, not just counselors. I think the counselors are getting better at that, uh, at, at trying to know their conscious and unconscious biases in those areas. Um, but you still, young women and young men hear those messages from everybody, you know, in church settings or your own home or your grandparents or whatever. And and those subtle messages of, oh, this is for men and this is for women, you know, they're different, um, are still there, are still there. I think we're, we're, we are moving the needle some, but, but uh, we do socialize girls and boys very differently. And um, most of the time people will say, no, I don't. I raise my daughters and sons the same. But what we know is we don't. We really, really don't, and a lot of it's really subtle. Some of it's not so subtle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Christmas presents, what kinds of things are under the tree, um, and, you know, baking kits and those things compared to tractors and science kits and those kinds of things. Um, but all of those, you know, kind of emerge into how how we how we as girls and young women and, and boys, you know, boys are socialized too, right? Um, make our decisions about what's acceptable, what's good, what's valued, what we're supposed to do, what we, you know. One of the things, Tom, I've always said for years is um, is um, people say all the time, well, women can choose to be in what areas, you know, major in what areas they want to. And I argue if you don't even believe that certain options are choices, then I don't believe that you really have choice. If you don't believe or have never heard that you could be, you know, an IT specialist or start your own business, you don't even think that's an option. 
And so we, we, you know, the efforts that we can do to just for both girls and boys to present all kinds of options to them and show examples of men and women in those fields can help open the minds of, of our girls and women uh, to more opportunities. I want to read uh, just one more quote from this article, The Daily Universe, um, and we'll move on to some, we'll take a break, move on to some other topics here. But um, this is a BYU student, Marianne Blake Bingham. Uh, she said she constantly receives comments about having to choose between a career in education or being a mother. Uh, this is her quote. It bothers me because there's an automatic assumption that, first of all, I want children, and second of all, I don't plan on pursuing my own career in education because of my family. And then here's the money quote for me. <laughs> she says, no one's asking my husband the same kind of questions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, men just don't get asked that question. And and uh, we, I, I must say that, that I often talk to women who have moved to Utah from other states. Maybe they are not part, many of them are not part of the predominant religion. I happen to be, so I, I but many of them aren't, and they, tell me, and I'm talking about every week at least one or two or three people tell me this, that they say, oh my gosh, it's so different here. I don't, you know, the messages, even going to lunch with men in other states, you know, women, if they're working with men, they sit down and eat lunch or whatever, and they're, they're like, there's such a different culture here and different expectations, and it's strange. So sometimes when we're, you know, just in this culture, it, things are invisible, to us, uh, the different gender, you know, men and women, the differences are a little bit invisible because we're used to it. But it's fascinating to just listen to people that move here and talk about, I've never heard this kind of language in our workplaces uh, back east or in California. So there really are differences here in the way that men and women work together, in the opportunities that girls and women perceive that they have. Um, and you know, it comes from so many things, like I, I said, on the way that we're raised and on just the language that we use. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that we, uh, you know, we do see progress, right? But sometimes we we think we're making more progress than we do. And some of that yeah. has to do with unconscious uh, bias. Uh, how can we make that conscious? How can we recognize uh, some things, you know, just in simple things, how we talk about things? That's a great question. Um, what's What's really encouraging to me is the number of companies that I'm communicating with, the CEOs and company leaders, that are really deciding to take this seriously. And, uh, and the research tells us that you can change culture, but it takes work. So if people just want to, like, have a five-minute thing or, or go to a quick training or whatever, it's not going to help that much. You have to make a commitment as an organization or, uh, you know, or a department or whatever that might be, um, that you really want to learn and grow together. And um, unconscious bias training is one of the basics. I've studied how to teach that a lot. It's got a bad rap. Just about 75% of unconscious bias training do not work. They've been shown not to, but there's very specific ways to design it so that it works. I, I do that often now because I can't imagine um, even understanding so much of what's around us without understanding how our brains work and how much of what we do is unconscious. So my your question is great, Tom, in that, I mean, we all need to start this, but 
I'll tell you, if we just want to touch it lightly and do the checklist, like the checklist, like do sexual harassment training, do this or that, that's those surface things are, you know, they help cover liability of organizations, but there's so much research that many of those things don't help. But you have to really take it on as a company or organization and say, or a family, I should even say a family, to say, hey, we want to learn and grow together. And this is not all about gender. It's, it could be about race and all of those things we have unconscious biases around. So starting to pay t- attention, reading, growing, um, really wanting to be better people. I, I mean, it really does help you be better when you start challenging yourself. And one of the things I've noticed specifically in Utah is that that I get a lot of people that, like, put their hands up. I wish you could see me, Tom. I'm like, <laughs> put my hand up, like, whoa, don't tell me I'm doing anything wrong. You know, that defensiveness. And instead of defensiveness, changing that to curiosity. Like, why do I react like that? Like, do I really, like, people say, I'm not racist. Well, all of us are. I mean, we, we are to some level just because of our unconsciousness. So that curiosity and understanding not being resistant to change is part of it as well. I'll tell you, it does take work. So um, being open and just starting to really pay attention and being in the conversation is, is critical. And, and I have to say that, that um, I'm, I'm working more and more with men who really want to be there and are doing good and making good progress. There's Still a lot of work to do, though. Uh, I keep uh, advertising a break. We'll, we'll we'll go to break, but I uh, but <laughs> I keep having follow up questions, <laughs> which is good. It's good just dis- discussion. Yeah. Um, so, what would you say about? Uh, I guess you would call them male allies. Uh, what would you say about yeah. about uh, what what men can do, what men should do, what uh, you know, uh, positive examples? Oh, this is that's a great question as well. There's some some books out there. So so there's more and more men that that really do care about being a male ally. And some of this comes from from, you know, companies, the the business case. Like, I mean, it's clear that when you have more women and men in equal numbers and people of different races, that your company thrives in better ways and you're more innovative and creative. That business case is quite strong. So when men decide, let's let's dig in and be an ally, I love it. And I'm working with some great male allies. I will just say that there's a couple of great books out there. Uh, one of them are fairly recent in the last year or two, uh, out by Harvard uh, Business Review Press, is called Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. And and so there's they get to very specific examples. Um, and then we've done research on male allyship and what women and men say are make good allies. And and I'll just give you maybe two examples. One is the research is super clear that one of the most important things for advancement and leadership development is getting good critical feedback. Um, just getting feedback of any kind. Yet the research says that naturally men get significantly more critical feedback than women. That's not just in Utah, that's around the world. And so if you don't understand that, then you don't change. You might think as a manager, and this is from actually women and men give less feedback to women. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Um, Yet feedback is 
critical to advancing and developing yourself. And so that's just one thing, like be aware of that, be aware that that happens, and then think about how you give feedback and when and how you can be more consistent and how you can be comfortable, sometimes being uncomfortable, <laughs> to, to make sure you um, really give opportunities to everyone. Right, And we do some of that with race as well. We know that white people are just more comfortable. You know, if, if they've been around white people their whole life, they just don't, they might give opportunities to more white people and not people of color. So, um, and feedback as well. So that, that's just one example. But, uh, you know, men that, that really care and want to, to start reading and figuring out how to dive in and, and be better allies. There's some great resources uh, to help. Well, and, take... and one of those, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll just mention real mm-hmm. quick, is we have a new, a fairly new, in the last six months, set of five reports on sexist comments and responses. And those are like fabulous. They're being utilized so much to really, that's the, they're good starts to conversations between men and women on, on uh, reading those and discussing some of those. The uh, sexist comments. So these are. Uh, tell me more about that. Uh, briefs. I, yeah, there there are um, research briefs and policy briefs. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's a whole set uh, on our website of of different kinds of sexist comments. We we actually um, when we did this research a couple of years ago, it, we were expecting maybe a hundred women to participate in the study and. About a thousand did, and so it took us like a year and a half to code all of the data that came in, and we really get down to the details of giving examples of sexist comments and and what kind they are and what they do, and I think they're just good educational materials that anybody can read, women and men. So a good conversation starter, uh, for sure, if you have the right context, sit down and talk about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's take a break. Uh, we were talking with uh, Susan Madsen. Uh, she is uh, the founding director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project, and uh, we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Susan Madsen, who is the inaugural Karen Haight Huntsman Endowed Professor of Leadership in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at USU and founding director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project. We're talking about uh, issues of equality and uh, helping uh, girls and young women see themselves in some of these roles and and many related topics. Uh, So Susan Madsen, I wanted to uh, just uh, share a couple of quotes from an event, I guess a fairly recent event, uh, in this, uh, in response to this report, Wallet Hub's report, um, depressing in some ways, right? Fourth year in a row, Utah's yeah. at, the, at the very bottom on equality, um, women's equality. But uh, this is, I want to read this first from uh, uh, Dave Wolsenhume Holm, who is uh, the Commissioner of Higher Education, right? Um, let's see, let me pull this up um, here. He says, we really need to start having conversations with our young ladies uh, in the early, early stages of life to help them understand what pathways are there for them, what impact they can have in our industries uh, today. And I guess that uh, goes to what you were saying earlier. Um, if, if it's just not uh, in the realm of possibility for a, a young girl, 
uh, she's not even going to put that on her on a, on her radar of you know stem or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely, and and the same thing plays out for you know we've we've done research for so long on on choices to go to college and graduate, right? And even graduation from high school and all of those. If those topics aren't in there, like I'm going to go get a bachelor's degree, if you're not starting that importance of education and how it's important for boys and girls, men and women to do that, um, you you know, you can, you don't, if you're not aspiring, you don't move in that direction. And so we, you and I were just talking about graduate degrees. So most young women just don't even, they're starting to think more about maybe getting those bachelors. But if you're not talking from a young age um, about those things, then it's just not on your radar. One of the things that we did find in our early research many years ago about who went to college and graduated, so around the state we did some major studies, um, and and those girls who saved money, you know, picture the piggy bank of Here's what you save for college. Here's what you do. Those girls who started saving money in elementary school, there was a real distinction between elementary school, middle school, and high school. Those that really started, you know, as long as far back as they can remember, saving their own money, parents saved too, but saving their own money, that act of saving money kept them thinking about going to college and graduating. And those people statistically were the ones that went to college and graduated when we asked them, you know, and compared the data. So um, it's fascinating that how early in age the messages start. I have a three-year-old granddaughter, and you can, I mean, she's three, but she is already seeing messages about how she should look. I try really hard, Tom, as a grandmother, knowing that that's especially in Utah, there's so much pressure to look that that your outside appearance is so important. And even men, you know, that introduce their wife, you know, say, here's my beautiful wife, right? The looks are so important. I'm trying really hard with my granddaughter not to, she's a delightful and cute, <laughs> she's just cute. But I'm trying really hard to say in front of her, you know, you're, you're running, your body is, is important, it, it can run, you're, you know, you're working hard, all of those growth mindset kind of terms instead of, oh, you're so cute. So even those messages about how important your mind is and those, girls get that from a young age, boys do as well, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they see, well, women should do this, men should do this. Um, and if they don't see other choices, that's just what they're going to feel and that they want to do when they grow up. And some of it's great, right? Um, it's just, you know, when we look at options, people need to be able to know the options that are before them and available to them. I want to read just one more uh, quote here from this. This is from uh, KSL's report on this uh, event. Uh, this is uh, Claustina Mann Reynolds, principal of the Park City School District. Uh, she says they, I assume it's talking about girls, they don't uh, just need to see someone that is on TV as a black woman. They need to see a black woman who was educated, who's there for them, is advocating for them. Yeah, absolutely. We've just finished a set. In fact, today we just uh, released it just an hour ago. Um, our last of five research briefs, or research snapshots, we call them, on women of color in the state of Utah. So we've done now and published one on black women, 
Um, this one today was on American Indian women, Hispanic, Pacific Islander, Asian. I think those are the the five ones. Um, and what I've found is it's it's really interesting to look at the differences in the data. First of all, there's not enough data on race in the state of Utah and gender, I should say. Um, but secondly, experiences of black women and American Indian women are different. Maybe not everything, but there's such differences. And when people are raised, what we know from girls and boys when they're raised, I mean, race really matter. I mean, if, you, if you're if you a, a black um, girl and don't see other, you might see some women in positions that you might, that are white women. But if you don't see educated black women or, you know, Asian women in, in the case of Asians, then you, there's an identity, you know, then you think, well, maybe I can't be there um, or do that. So I love that quote from her. I think that is so true. I want to talk about uh, gender discrimination. You have an article out um, that the headline is, What to Do If You're Experiencing Gender Discrimination in Utah. Do, do we know, first of all, how prevalent this is? And, and if, if we're going up or down with this, and then, then maybe talk about, uh, you know, what you talked about in your article, what to do. Well, uh, in terms of prevalence, it's really hard. Uh, you know, the even getting the sexual harassment numbers, you know, so few of the situations where people have discrimination or, or um, you know, any of the gender discrimination are even brought up. I mean, the numbers are, I mean, the guesses nationally and in the state of Utah that so few of of the situations are reported. People just kind of just go by. We we know from our data that many women just leave workplaces because when they, if they try to, to make an issue of it and change people's behavior, oftentimes there's retaliation, right? Um, and, and you really struggle with that. What we know uh, anecdotally, so it's hard. My point, I guess, Tom, with that last statement is, is it's hard to say how prevalent it is. I know years ago when we did a sexual harassment uh, research snapshot, uh, four-page snapshot, we tried to pull any piece of data we can, and we, and and it was Utah was on par with others. Um, but I'll tell you this um, research that I mentioned before of these five briefs on sexist comments and stuff. There are just so many situations, um, and for many women, it is daily. It is daily. Well, you don't know how many women have told me that in the hundreds that they face it on a daily basis. So, um, you know, and some of it is subtle and some of it's not something you would report, but there still are, you know, hundreds if not thousands of situations where, where there's gender discrimination, right? And so we just put out a one-pager a while back, and I published a report on, you know, what are the facts, but, but what can you do? Um, and one is just the first one really is like just know know some example know know what it is you know 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 what it is so you feel like people are not treating you well just understand read a little bit about what does gender discrimination or sexual harassment what is that so that's the first step the second one really is to document I mean if things happen just document it in your own records. Write down the date of the event, any any other people that were present, um, and just the details. 
So, you know, you could do that electronically or in writing, but start documenting things. And then um, really look at your employer's written policies against gender discrimination. And if you're seeing something that connects, you know, start thinking about that. Um, And so, and keep your emails and those kinds of things. I mean, people don't want this to happen and you and a lot of people just ignore it because this is a pain, right? It's kind of a pain taking it up. But uh, oftentimes I tell women, if you're experiencing this, guess what? There's probably a lot of other women that are experiencing the same thing in your situation. So, And then I guess the third, you know, know, know your rights, know what it is, is first document in various kinds of ways. And then third, communicate, talk to others, speak out, you know, Communicate openly about situations, report it, um, and, you know, make sure those things are, are not just verbal, but they're in writing as well. So we have some other tips on, on our website as well, and, and I included in that article. Um, it's nice to be on the positive side of these things, but I sure the reason we published this is there's sure a lot of uh, people that struggle with this in the state. Let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with Susan Madsen, who is the founding director of Utah Women in Leadership Project. By the way, before we go to break, what's the best way to get to your uh, site, the Utah Women in Leadership Project? The easy, easiest way is utwomen.org. And, um, and there's research tabs. All the research we're talking about are there um, and, and resources and all kinds of things. But utwomen.org. Utwomen.org. Great. Uh, more with Susan Madsen following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with uh, Susan Madsen, who is founding director of Utah Women and Leadership Project. Uh, much to discuss. We never have enough time. We have about uh, seven minutes left in uh, this discussion uh, today. I want to make sure I, I get to this. Uh, this is very important. Maybe we combine these two. They're, they're related. Uh, a couple papers, uh, presentations, Building Emotional Resilience in Girls and Young Women and Building Confidence in Girls. What, what are the highlights there? What would you say? Oh, there's so much that we could talk about there, but, you know, I've done a lot through the years on helping girls build confidence, and what we know and that people really need to understand is often we we just um, assume that it's girls' fault, that they don't have confidence, but there are some light genetic kinds of things regarding confidence in terms of our hormones and neurotransmitters. But so much is related to um, socialization, back to what we've talked about already. Um, one thing that you'll find interesting, Tom, there's, there was a study that came out um, in the past year that looked at uh, three-year-old girls compared to three-year-old boys, and it looked at uh, benevolent sexism. So that's an interesting term. We have a lot of benevolent sexism in the state of Utah, and that comes from a good place, but Men are are really socialized to just take extra care of girls and women and and really sometimes even make decisions for them. So this really research study, and they said it was because of fathers, and I'm sure it comes from a good place, that by the age of three years old, girls will ask for help three times more than boys the same exact age. And they said it really wasn't the mothers. It was the fathers, fathers being just overly, like, helping um, instead of, you know, 
girls and boys, girls and boys, you know, jumping down like boys do mostly from big things, maybe getting hurt. They they go and help their daughters more. And what's interesting is when you look at this this trained helplessness in some ways, that really impacts. Um, Girls, uh, you know, I, I always joke that when I moved to Utah 20 years ago, um, uh, there were girls' resort instead of girls' camp. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't the tough stuff, you know. Um, so there's some socialization, but we need girls and boys to both be tough in a lot of ways in terms of resilience and all these hard things. The, the things that they come across are hard. But we can train from a young age girls to not have confidence and not take risks, and not do those things just by the subtle things that we do. Um, also, one of the things that, I, when I think about leadership, um, boys are typically socialized from a young age to picture themselves as leaders, and we call it leadership identity, and girls are not as much. Um, so they don't see themselves as, as the strong, as vocal, as, I think that's changing some, I really do think, but that's a piece of confidence as well, uh, the way we socialize and train. Um, and by the way, one other kind of sad um, demographic is that girls and boys, sometimes even when they're young, they're closer in terms of confidence level, even based, you know, even though I, I mentioned the other research. But when puberty hits, and, and sadly, you know, it used to be, puberty used to be, uh, for girls, used to be like, 11, 12, 13, 14, it has shifted down to 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. And when you hit puberty, the confidence level absolutely drops in girls because of a lot of different things. And so really making sure they keep that identity, they keep that resilience. I think more and more we have to talk to our boys and girls about this resilience um, that looks that the way you look, that external, you know, and social media are all wrapped up into, I believe, an attack against our girls and women, um, you know, that, that insecurity that comes from those kinds of things. So, so, so many things that, um, that we can do to just really strengthen confidence. I, I guess the last thing I would mention there is, when I do workshops for girls and young women, one of the things I've noticed, especially in Utah, is that so many girls and women have no clue their strengths, their gifts. They just don't know. They assume they're not talented. They assume things. The research says that the more we help girls and women understand their strengths and gifts, the more they actually contribute, can contribute. But oftentimes we have this culture of, shame when it comes to you shouldn't for girls and women we shouldn't talk about our strengths we need to be quote humble and if we talk about or acknowledge that we do things well then we're not i'm putting quote marks up tom mm -hmm. we're not humble right and and what i say continuously is humility is is um is just being teachable it's not being small you can be confident and humble at the same time. And that's that's a unique message that I think we get here in, in Utah even strong, that we're not supposed to talk or uh, talk about or acknowledge our strengths, when in reality the research says the opposite is 
um, that when we know and understand, we have more confidence. So um, we're all unique. We all have different strengths, and it's good to understand that uniqueness in each of us. We just have uh, two minutes left. Um, oh, dang. <laughs> it fly, you flies going. by. You get me going, but, Tom. <laughs> flies by. So just two yeah. minutes. So, so very briefly on this, but I, I want to have you talk about this. Um, you uh, There was a study from Utah Women Leadership uh, Project uh, that found that nearly one in five uh, women uh, report uh, having seven or more poor mental health days in the last 30 days. Yeah. Um, so it, it just maybe very quickly, what um, you know, what, what what can you do as a family member or or as a woman who's experiencing this? Yeah, men men experience poor mental health as well, but but the research nationally and in Utah continued to say that women uh, perceive and experience you know these poor mental days uh, significantly more than than men, um, and. Uh, that's a real challenge. I mean, we do know we have depression issues. Uh, we have higher levels of antidepressant use and those kinds of things in the state of Utah. I think, as I've said to other things, the more that we understand, the more that we we um, understand what mental health, the more that we don't shame. Because through the years, you know this, that we have shamed, you know, mental health and you hide those conversations and so forth. I think it's changing. Um, but... Uh, there's a lot of people that just don't know how many resources really are out there. And uh, we link to many of those on our website, again, at utwomen.org. But there are resources out there. There's a whole effort. You know, we have more per capita women who get pregnant and have kids. And so there's an epidemic in some ways of this uh, postpartum depression, you know, the related to pregnancies. And Many people suffer in silence and not understand the resources that are really out there to help them. Um, and the more I think that we share those resources but help people feel safe talking to each other um, and, and seeking help, the better we're going to be moving forward. I mean, it doesn't just impact the woman herself. Um, as a mother, it impacts her children or her family and every, everyone she touches in some ways, um, you know. This, this silence just doesn't help. And, and, Tom, I'm really writing a lot about the silence that we have, not just in, in mental health, but in sexual assault and domestic violence and other kinds of struggles. Um, and I, I'm just ready to have us break the silence on those things that drastically impact, often, you know, in a negative way, so many individuals and families within our state. Good, good message for, for the end of the program here. Much more to read, uh, much more to experience. View um, utwomen.org, right? The uh, best place to yes. to go for Utah Women Absolutely. Leadership Project. I should mention here at the end um, that uh, Utah Public Radio and Utah Women Leadership Project have a partnership, a podcast. Um, so uh, that you can find that. You can link over from upr.org or you can go directly to utwomen. Uh, org as well. And we love that partnership, uh, and, and we, we are, have been releasing lots of podcasts uh, in, in this partnership, and some great for people that really want to know information and data that can really help them and the people that they love. I think it would be a great idea to join the podcast and, um, and li- listen in. All right. We'll invite you to do that. Invite you to check out Utah Women Leadership Project, utwomen.org. Susan Madsen is the uh, director of that uh, Utah Women Leadership Project. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks so much. 
And uh, we'll go to Beehive Archive, as we do on Wednesdays. Thanks, everyone, for listening. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Acid rain used to be a big problem in Salt Lake Valley. As local farmers sought to curb its impact, they found themselves getting gaslit about gas emissions from nearby smelters, both in court and in their own fields. Learn how after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Water normally means life for farmers and their crops, but in the early 1900s, when smelters in the Salt Lake Valley were processing 6,000 tons of ore per day, their gas emissions caused deadly acid rain. Farmers fought the smelting companies to protect their crops, but with few regulations on toxic emissions, they were at a disadvantage. Acid rain occurs when sulfur dioxide gas from smokestacks reacts with moisture in the air and rains down, bleaching plants and poisoning animals. In 1904, Salt Lake Valley farmers sued the American Smelting and Refining Company, known as ASARCO, for damages from the rain. Some smelters relocated or installed rudimentary filtration systems, but farmers remained convinced that acid rain still damaged their crops. In response, Asarco and other companies established their own farms near their smelters and hired teams of botanists to research the problem. The scientists conducted over 3,500 experiments in 1915 alone and discovered other important factors that led to crop failure, such as temperature and humidity. Armed with their scientific methods, smelters farmed successfully. One company even took its crops to the 1917 Utah State Fair, showcasing barley, corn, and dairy products all grown in the shadow of its smokestack. These bushels of visibly unaffected produce undermined the authority of local farmers, who did not have the benefit of new technologies or teams of scientists. Farmers hoping to receive compensation for damages from continued acid rain were often portrayed by company lawyers as simply bad at their jobs. Newspapers called them smoke farmers, who blamed every issue on nearby smelters just to make a buck. Anti-farmer sentiment rose after more than 400 farmers won their court case against Asarco and four other companies, which shut down all but one smelter in the valley and cost hundreds of local jobs. Still, some good came from the war over acid rain in Salt Lake Valley. Company farming near smelters helped researchers discover better agricultural technologies, and the Utah Agricultural College, now Utah State University, expanded its research field stations. Yet, it would not be until the 1960s Clean Air Act that sulfur dioxide emissions began to be reined in. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.